Listener Production. And now I realised that was anxiety, undoubtedly. It presented itself as agoraphobia because you felt vulnerable because I'm being very lucky. I don't know when people are staring at me, but when you realise how many people are staring, that can be really confronting. And that was, I think I was, I was starting to sense that. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe, and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. TV star, best-selling cookbook author and radio presenter Matt Preston is larger than life. His exuberance for food, fashion and the perfect piece of cake has made him a household name and his role on MasterChef has made him an international star. Now, Matt has just released his memoir, Big Mouth, and I couldn't wait to find out more about this charismatic and generous-hearted man who, despite his big personality has kept his private life private. In fact, we are so keen to get chatting. It was all systems go where Matt arrived into the podcast studio. Take a listen as Matt, in his typically enthusiastic style, launches into describing the difficult process of writing his memoir. Writing the book is one thing, but it's the impact of talking about those stories. There's a, something cathartic about telling. I always say it's like having a monster. Secrets often like having a monster under the bed. You're really scared of it. And what if it gets out? What's it going to do to you? And then once you actually lean, stick your head under the bed and shine the torch, you realize there's nothing there and it's fine. And actually what you get when you show vulnerability, I think, Jethro, is you tend to get paid back in support and concern because fundamentally people are actually pretty nice and any way that we can find connections on a deeper level than what football team we support or what kind of jacket we wear, I think that's good stuff. And it's freeing. Absolutely. You can almost put those demons to bed in a way. I think you still carry the pain. I think you still carry the pain, but I think in terms of the whole range of things that are, are frighteningly common get treated as if they're individual crosses to bear and the pain's still going to be there but the fact that you three of your other friends have been through the same thing and you can discuss it and we always talk about living in an oversharing generation but in lots of cases there's a huge amount of positives in that what were you most frightened about sharing I don't think I was frightened about sharing anything I was more I was more frightened about this process the process of talking about it and the process of recording an audiobook I'm far more confronting because to write something down, and because you, you, it's really just putting what's in your head already, writing down, interrogating whether you've been fair and truthful and honest and authentic, whether you've told your story and not told someone else's story. Those are, that's all part of the process of writing. The confrontation of saying things out loud is very different. The audiobook was an eight-day process, and the stuff that I found myself struggling with, there's a letter in the book that my sister and I found in my mother's um, my brother died when he was 22, a thing called Sudden Unexplained Death in Epilepsy. And that was William. That was William, not known about at that time. And she wrote a letter to the paper trying to say, this isn't the right way for bereaved people, people to be told about the death of the child. It was very, and to read that, to read how brutal it was and the, the concrete room without windows, the screwed down metal chairs, the overflowing ashtray, the absence of, of any 
box of tissues even and just a kind of a pile of scrapey paper towels. And she was just sent home too, on her own. Sent home out into the street. And luckily there's a church over the road where she can go and get some solace. She was a Catholic. But you can read, when you read that, you go, you were thinking about it not worth carrying on. Like that was horrible. You can tell that she's, it's so raw to read that, to realize your mother's in that place at that time. That's really hard to deal with. For me, that line, she's so... My mother found my brother in the childhood bedroom we grew up on, on the floor, um, called an ambulance, ambulance comes, they go to the hospital, she doesn't know if he's alive or dead, and then when the nurses finally come in, they come in with a big sheaf of papers, and on the back of those sheaf of papers, and this is something that uh, still chills me, and I think because I transfer across to my children, as we all do, but on the back of the papers, the first thing she realised that her son was dead with the words refrigerate written in big blue letters. And that, to discover your child's died like that is just so wrong and so... And I mean, hopefully that doesn't happen now. And we have many more volunteers doing brilliant work in hospitals just to be there, to hold the hand, to, you know, make you a cup of tea or a coffee or, or just a little bit of that human sympathy and support. And a hug. And a, and a hug, exactly right, and a hug. So... That was really hard to read. That's probably the most shaping thing for me was that one letter because you go, then my mother's reaction wasn't to close down but was to then find other bereaved parents who had children who died the same way. SIDEP is one of those things where you can reduce the incidences dramatically with the right, you know, with the right, taking your medication at the right time, not getting overtired, treating yourself kindly. If you've got epilepsy, you can reduce the incidence dramatically. At the moment, we lose about 170 young adults. Um, through SUDEP. So you can re- reduce that, but your GP needs to know about it. You need to know about it. And so organizations that, you know, so a mother went out and started an organization and then they campaigned for GPs to know about SUDEP. And, and now if you put in SUDEP, you'll find lots of people talking about it. And that, you know, back when my, my brother died, you know, which is anniversary was this weekend. And um, that's hard, isn't it? Anniversaries. Does it ever get easier, Matt? I think it does. I think it does because I think when I found when after my brother died, I kept seeing him in the street, you know, and that way I think we all all do that kind of wish fulfillment. We see someone, we think it's them, we follow. It's not because you're you're still in that denial phase. I think it gets easier. I think it gets harder at times like Christmas when you you do that moment of, but what if, you know, what if they were there with their partner, with their children as well? I think that's a a sense of gap and loss. one of the things I talk about in the book is about, you know, my mum was a single mum, but I don't feel that there was a gap or a loss because I didn't know a dad. So when I get adopted by the man who marries my mother and he then becomes my dad, that's great. So I don't feel a loss and a gap there compared to, say, those friends of mine who lost their dad when they were 9 or 15 and suddenly there's this yawning chasm in their life and how do you feel that? And you can't feel that. So in, I look at it as it's the stuff where you lose something is different than not having something. So for you, though, when you lost William, when mm. he died, you were still a young man. Yeah. How did you oh, terribly. Terribly. It's manage right. that I, time? And I think that, that probably is also another equally confronting part of the book is that thing that I've got two sisters, um, I've got my mother, my stepdad. I've gone through it with a great friend of mine who's, her brother had been killed in Turkey. Same thing, three three kids. And I watched what happened to that family. What do you say in that situation? How do you how do you do anything? And I think I, but one of these I've learned is how to become better in that. But I certainly, you know, I was so twenty seven years ago. Better? I ran away. I ran away. I went away. Well, I mean, I came to Australia for the first time. You know, a year later. Um, but I probably wasn't present because again, didn't know how to raise it. 
confusing because obviously, you know, this is my, he's my brother and I saw, always saw him as my brother, but he's also my half-brother. So the pain that my stepfather is going through is very different, but it also, it's also quite, it's quite excluding because you're part of the family, but you're not part of the family. Like kind of the, you don't really know where you fit. I think at that point, at that point, I felt uncomfortable because I, because, you know, I couldn't, I didn't know how to fit in in that basis because that's one of the few times when, uh, and I, all the time I fitted, all the time it was great, amazingly supportive, got a great relationship with my sisters, still have a great relationship with my sisters, great relationship with my mother, but I didn't know how to go to my stepfather and say, I'm sorry your son's dead, you know, because how do you do that? Did you ever do that? No, I didn't, no, 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 I didn't. And I, but I also don't think that was... Um, I don't know. If, I don't think probably that my my sisters did the same thing, or it wasn't discussed in that way. And I don't know whether. I think it was very much. I came from a family where you know, you just get on with it. You just get on with it, and then you deal with it, and you try and find positives, and you push forward for that. Which is often how many of us deal with grief. And I certainly don't think that's wrong. But I think we become better at just being able to. Some the the friend I, I said whose whose brother got got murdered in Turkey. I, I had dinner with him when I, was, when I was last time I was back in the UK, and she said you wouldn't believe how supportive you were. And I went, but I wasn't supportive. She said, no, but you were just there. You just took. You know, we went out for drinks. Normal life continued. We talked about it, and you realize actually doing is so small. It's tiny things actually make the difference. So I think that's. I think there's also a, a danger that. Um, I have talked to my sister about this, about whether they resented me. I've apologized to them. Thinking, I don't think I, w- I was probably as engaged as I was. But then they were, you know, they were, one of them was still living at home. I'd left home. I was, you know, I was going probably only going back home twice, a, maybe three times a year, even though my mum lived down the road. It's very different. It was very different back then, children and parents' relationships. I'm so happy that my son, you know, I had dinner with my son last Thursday. Come around, comes around most Thursdays. I love this fact they want to come back. They want to spend time. They want to go on holiday with you. Now that was never the case. So I think is the other realization I read from from talking to my friends about growing up and what we were like as kids and what we're now like as parents is it's the best thing about being you know, all that time you whinge about being a taxi service and just taking kids to sport and having to sit there in the rain and watching them play and as parents we go. Roll our eyes. I call myself a mooba. That's right. Yeah, and, but, but, then, but then on the other side, on the other side of that, then strangely they want to go on holiday with you and you have a great relationship with them and that's an incredible reward because I think one of the, another one of those great tragedies is the fact that, you know, our kids get to an age where they suddenly don't need us anymore and then they disappear. And I love the fact that now... In a situation where your kids say, let's go on holiday, you go, okay. That, that's like winning the lottery, isn't it? Well, it's like, I'm doing something right. Or I've done something it, right. Yes. Or, or alternatively, that they just You'll feel sorry. You'll pay the bill. Yeah, well, and, and that, that may well be the case, but gee, that's, you know, maintaining that relationship. Because there tends to be that, that disconnect between when you leave home and when you start having kids of your own. And then the grandparent thing kicks in and the family kind of cracks again. So I, I think that, that's very exciting. Let's talk more about family mm. and kids. You mentioned earlier your stepfather, Anthony, mm. and he was passionate about what he did. Yeah. He loved what he did. Yeah. And you said there was almost a problem with that because he was so obsessed and involved in that. And yet all of us, you know, my, my two sisters and myself all ended up in work that we were obsessed with. 
my younger sister, is obsessed with tennis, wrote about tennis, now is a tennis trainer. If you're watching Wimbledon coverage and someone retires in a press conference, she'll be the person taking the press conference. She now manages tennis players. That combination of one having someone who is so obsessed, um, we haven't learned from it. <laughs> and that's what I want to talk with you about because you mentioned there your sister, but in your fabulous memoir, you talk about, I want to be present as mm. a parent. I want to do what my stepfather hasn't done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you talk about... But then re- I didn't. Yes, yeah, and I, I, That's right, yeah. And I think that's the thing. And the decision with that, because obviously MasterChef was shot in Sydney and we lived in Melbourne. So the decision of me doing MasterChef wasn't mine. It was it was Emma's. And it was very much, you've got young children and blah, blah, blah. But, and Emma's your wife? And Emma's my wife. Of the amethyst eyes. Of the amethyst eyes. That's exactly right. But again, with MasterChef, no one... I mean, I thought it'd be a year. I'll be, I'll be a bit, bit of a lark, go up to Sydney and know the boys quite well, we'll have a bit of fun, we'll TV, no one will watch it. Who's going to watch people cooking when you can't taste it, you can't smell it five days a week? It's going to be a dud, we'll come back, bang. Um, obviously, the reality is suddenly there's, you know, the main show, then there's a spin-off show, and then there's publicity and this and that, and suddenly it grows into this nine it's kind of nine-month well, it's, it's a juggernaut. And a global success. So how the Matt... Did you deal with that as a father, your beautiful wife, your three young kids? Positives and negatives. Positives are saying, no matter what's offered to me, I don't work weekends. I spend the weekends with them. So that's number one. So that was a big positive. Number two in terms of positives was having that realisation at the end of season four of MasterChef that I was done. I'd been warned by a very good friend of mine who worked in TV for a long, long time. She said, you understand the pressures on a relationship of, you know, living in one city and working in another is a really problematic and it, very few survive in that situation. So I was conscious. I caught myself saying to Emma, look, I've got to go. I've got to take the flight home to Sydney. And that was like, and that was totally home. unintentional. That's right. Absolutely. And it was like, that was, that combined with, with my daughter playing a wish fulfillment game of dad's going to take you to the zoo when I was there. Those two things <gasps> made me go, it's, I've got it. This is all right. Bang. Enough's enough. I'm, I'm going to, season four, my last season. I'm not going to come back. We're done. That's great. It's been brilliant. It's been marvelous. We have to stop. But how, in terms of what did that make you feel like on the inside? Because you present, I think you're such a larger-than-life person, Matt, in every single way. You have this wonderful bravado, this turn of phrase, your amazing outfits. And I wonder sometimes if that's sort of a... A mask? Uh, Yes. I mean, mean, whatever, we all live behind masks. That's absolutely true. Did I... I, You know what it is? I think it's about realisation and I need to take action. When we're having a really good time, we're all very good to kind of like, I'll be fine, this is great, it's great for the family, and I'm only one, you know, all that kind of, all those things about not being present, absolutely crucial. And I've been very, because you've got to remember that before MasterChef, Emma had been full-time work, and I'd been... You were working from home. And looking after our firstborn, and as I was typing stories, he was in the bassinet, then I was taking him to kinder, I was picking up from kinder. I mean, I do not need a medal for that, because obviously that, that is not a medal-worthy thing. Every dad should do it. I know, I understand that, that these are moments where you have to be honest, but also acknowledge that that's the least you can do. So I kind of knew the joy of being there for the first word, for the first step, for all those things. And the feeling I had at that moment was... No. Okay, bang. It wasn't a regret moment because I don't think there's much time for regret. It's understanding that the sharpness you feel from that moment is a reminder that you need to change what you're doing and then changing what you're doing. And so that was my angle was like, well, that's it, we're done. And then bizarrely, you know, three months later, they decided to move 
MasterChef to Melbourne. So you, in fact, thought, I'm going to step away from this yeah. now. Yeah, I would have means yeah. Because you also write in the book about you'd managed to avoid the sort of lure of the blondes at the Ivy with the bags of white powder. I mean, tell me a bit more about that. <sighs> you know, the, this is, I suppose, what's called the footy tour mentality of what happens on tour stays on tour. I've always maintained that... Um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a, a great... This is, I think, a very important... This is a story that goes to absolutely the heart of this. One of the reasons I knew that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with Emma was very simple. First time we were living together, I went out. I was at work. We ended up going out of Mobus, you know, 3 a.m., came home, and normally that would, in my previous relationships, would have resulted in shoes throwing and shouting and how dare you, what are you doing, what are you doing, what are you doing? And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a very loyal person. And Emma just rolled over and went, oh, thank heavens you're safe. And then went back to sleep. And the next day I felt so guilty. All I had to do was make a phone call. And I think it's that thing. If people give you the, if people give you the freedom to, you know, live in another city and do something that ends up being, you know, an amazing experience, you repay them by being the best that you can be. And you don't repay them by sleeping around or, you know, you maintain this attitude that, you know, I kind of need to be... I need kind of need to reward the freedom I've got by treating that with respect. I suppose that that's what it is. And also realizing what is it that actually matters? What is it that endures? And, and that is really hard when you're younger. And I think that's the weird thing for me. You know, when I when I got that kind of that sort of I don't call it fame, I call it familiarity because I think that's the relationship that we've, we were very lucky to have with people, that, that it wasn't screaming Sean Mendes, you know, ah, oh, moment. It was like, how you going? I see you, mate. How you going? And people are saying, morning, Matt, when you walk down the street, that which is the best, uh, the best sort of way to be treated by people. It's a beautiful way of being treated. It happened to me late, right? For most people, you know, with their football stars, it happens when they're, they're, they're so young. 18, 19, 20, no experience, you know, everything. And if I think of how I behaved when I was like that. It's terrible. It's terrible. So, again, it's an advantage of being, being older because you do come to realize that the only things, and really the only things that matter at any one time, are your friends and your family. That, that's, that's how you, at the end of the day, when people say, what sort of father were you? I say, well, that's not for me. That's for my kids to judge. And, and, and they should, if you want to, someone to hold up a scorecard, it's their job. And hopefully they are kind to me. But, you know, I mean... they but, are. They want to come on holidays with you. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Please pay. No, no. I know. So I think that's the other thing you realize. And this is the other thing about moving back. And I didn't really realize this. When we started having a family, I kind of had this image that all kids would be, the, all babies would be the same. And of course, they're not. Everything is so radically different. But the other one with boys, specifically with boys, is being there is so crucially important. When your son wants to talk to you, is not when you want to talk to them. Invariably. You can't say, how's it going? Look, you'll get a grunt. However, especially if they're moving, if they're walking or you're out, you know, you're out playing golf with them or whatever, once they're moving or even in the car, they will talk to you. And you want, you need to be at the moment when they're willing to talk. They'll talk long and lots and it's fantastic and it's a real privilege. That's the reward you get from presence. And I don't think you can, you can try and fake that by coming back and being there Saturday, Sunday, but I don't think you get it. It's, it's when you're, I don't know, driving them to school on a Wednesday and they say, oh, I've met this person, Dad, and they're kind of cool. 
You get you get that, and that that's that that is you know you're smiling because you know those are those. Are oh, the, that's that's the, the stuff of life, that's and that's right. that's yeah. what you want them to talk with you about, yeah. and and you want to hear you know what they're passionate about and who they like and who they don't like and their lives. You want to be a part of their lives, and also you want them to be that, to have that that sense of comfort with you that they can if they're having trouble, we've got a problem that they can talk to you as well. And that we are all, you know, this is this terrible, terrifying thing when you leave for the first time with, you know, your partner, your baby, and everything has changed. At that moment, everything everything changes. You suddenly got a, a family, and the, the, all the dynamics change. But all that 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 starts to become crucially important as you get older. I think actually that becomes more and more important, and the other stuff kind of wanes because it's just know, window dressing. And you know, I don't want to go. I want to, don't want to go to some party. I'd rather no. I'd rather sit at home and watch Desperate Housewives with my eighteen-year-old daughter, and she'll and tell me what's going on. And sponge cake. And well, sponge cake, sponge cake would be good, especially <laughs> if she's made it. That'd be ideal. Because <laughs> you've said too in your book that really having kids it made you grow up. Oh, I think it makes us all grow up mm. and take responsibility. Although my mother's great line, I think she told me when I turned 40 was, I'm still 25, I just pretend to be older. And, and that's a great attitude to have. So I don't know whether we ever grow up. I think we pretend to grow up. Um, but hopefully we keep that same wide-eyed enthusiasm and joy for life that you had back then. You're not ground down with all the stuff that will grind you down, whether you're bringing up a family or in a working environment or whatever. If you can keep hold of that, that kind of, kind of wild-eyed enthusiasm, that's beautiful. So how do you manage that? You strike me as someone, and all of my dealings with you over the years, you are full of beans. Yeah, well, and well, you're interested in people. Because people are fascinating. How fascinating are people? And not just fascinating, you know, obviously fascinating people, but the conversations you had. And there's a, there's a story in the book. There's a wonderful, he was kind of like the, he was like the Matthew Riley or the, or the, the Dan Brown of his generation, a guy called Frederick Forsyth. And I got to have dinner with him. And on one side was a very, very boring schoolboy, and the other side was, was a very, very wide-eyed me. And at the end, we had a wedding. He was great. And at the end, he said, you have to understand, Matt, that, that all the stories I've written, as Frederick Forsyth wrote, Day of the Jackal, Odessa File. He wrote all the like, massive books of the, the era. And he said, you, you'd never know where the great story is going to come from. It can come from. It can come from the politician. It can come from the guy who's weeding your front lawn. So you just got to keep your ears open because you never know. I'm a huge believer that everyone's got a story, and especially that's what I found now, confirmed again by this book, that so many people say, this happened to me, or we had that, and I've never really talked about it. And it can be a whole range of different things. It was too humiliating to talk about it. And then they talk about it and they say, how do you feel now? They go, oh, it feels really, really cathartic. And then in my current life, I try and surround myself in terms of what I do, in terms of doing radio now, of interviewing people I'm interested in. And then you get that, how fascinating. And then you then that, what they say that you've read and you know they're going to say to a degree resonates with other people. And, and that's what it's about, Jess. It's about, I mean, it sounds so trite, doesn't it? But it's that, can we make just this little corner where we can't, we can't deal with those problems and that that's too big and that's too hard. But can we talk about, this little problem. What can you do with this little... We can make this little corner of the world just a little bit better. And if we do that, that's really good. And then our, our job should be, when we find people doing exactly that in their little corner, how can I support them? What can I do to help them, you know, make, make their reach a little bit broader, you know, help more people. Hold up. 
you have an incredible social conscience and you began early on in your career sort of, could I say, as a communist? No. <laughs> no, I wasn't. I was, I was a, a bit I like was, me. I was a, a left-wing... No, um, I know. I went to work. Limousine driver. No, or... I didn't have a limousine because we were paid no money. <laughs> I was I was poor. I was poor. I suppose I've, I've always been centrist. I've always been in that kind of the centre. But but I worked in an organisation that was very left wing and had a lot of the big names of the, the left. Some would have been communists. Some would have been socialist workers party. Some would be some would have been the party of the socialist workers left. You know the multiple myriad factions of of the left. Um, so I, I worked there. So I was Captain Shallow. I, I organised events and did concerts and set up clubs with them. And we did some stuff like that, and that was great fun. But I got to see a very different world to one I'd grown up in, which was very much on the you know on the right, and so now I'm seeing on the left, and that's great, and that's great to see both sides. I don't think either side of politics has a monopoly on caring. I think that often we perceive this image that that the left has has a more caring attitude, but I, I think you also see it on the, the right as well. And, and I think it comes in different forms, but it tends to be just... That's a very evolved view, and I have a tendency to agree with you because I think sometimes the left can eat their own. Oh, I mean... Can't uh, they? Oh, we, well, well that, that's what, when I talked about those four parties, they hate each other more than the other side, you know, and this is the Margaret Thatcher. It's like, wait a second, you know, can't we all just agree on a destination you're trying to get to and rather than arguing about which way we go there? But I think in terms of that making a difference, I think the, you know, this is the great joy about being in Australia. If we sit in a room, if we take 20 people off the street and we ask them 20 basic questions about what is right and what is wrong, you know, who should pay tax, um, whether we should be an unequal society, whether women should have equality, whether, you know, although we saw it with marriage equality, it's like, why not? You know, it's that, I think it's that thing whereby the common sense of the rump of the population in Australia, and Jonathan Haidt, the, the ethicist, writes beautifully about this, they're there in the middle but they get scared because they can't speak because on the far left and the far right, people shout them down and those two groups are trying to divide that rump down the middle and push you either into their camp or they don't care. Their camp is great. Pushing into the other camp is even better because then, then they can point to you joining that and they can... And it's fueling this kind of... this very loud, ill-measured debate when we've, and we argue about stupid things. Let's talk about you because mm. you're very good, Matt, at talking about... Everyone else. That's what I'm 60 (laughs) years. I know. And and that's absolutely right. So do you get anxious or not anxious? Perhaps that's not quite the right word, but you don't want to open up so much because you are, you're a very private person. People know you. People are very much aware of who you are. You've been a presence in so many of our lives, but we don't know about what makes you tick. You're good at deflecting, making other people feel great around you, sharing their stories. Isn't that then who I am? I mean, that's who I I set myself up to be. I would much rather, I I don't, you know, I'm very... But how would you describe yourself? um, Enthusiastic, interested, uh, lucky, three words interested because I am fascinated. And because like when you have those moments, you have those realisation moments, they come from anywhere. That's the excitement. It's an interesting thing with this book is that whole, that concern about being perceived as self-seeking. I had to talk about the, this book in front of 120 people. I've said, writing a memoir is a bit like looking yourself in the mirror naked. And you kind of go, okay, that's quite confronting. Doing it in front of an audience of 120 people you can see, that's like standing, taking your clothes off in front of that audience and, and then talking about it. And I don't mind talking about, you know, the pain or how I felt or what it was about. What I worry about it is that it's perceived as being something where I am um, 
It's all about me, me, me. And I don't think it should be but about me, But it's a me, memoir. Me. Yeah, but, so yeah, but, it's got to be about you, well, Matt. Well, it's, it's got me in the title. <laughs> it's got me in the title. And a wonderful picture of you on the cover. You also, in the book, you talk briefly about a time on MasterChef mm. where you weren't well. And it yeah, took and you and by that, surprise. And that, that was really interesting. I mean, that, that and I think that was... That was Undoubtedly, I got I got very kind of um very kind of wobbly, and we thought it was hyper blood pressure, hyper hypo. Went through the whole thing. Car, great cardiologist got you know rang all my mates in Sydney, and they put me in contact with their mates. We went through everything, and now I realised that was anxiety, undoubtedly, and that whole because it always it presented itself as agoraphobia because you felt vulnerable. Because I'm being very lucky. I don't know when people are staring at me, but. When you realise how many people are staring, that can be really confronting, and that was, I think, I was, I was starting to sense that. And you know, it's like you know, you you're walking. You start from, to overthink, don't you? you? It sort of yeah, starts it, to, and, and, it, and it's not based in any reality, but I think it's in, it's it becomes quite it becomes increasingly common. I know lots of people go through similar things. Yeah, that was not knowing what's going on is scary because you don't know. Now I now I know what it is, and. You know, I've had one incident of that maybe in three years where you just feel very, well, it's, it's that, that Steve Smith vertigo thing. Keep, you keep seeing people talk in the media and go, I think that's probably the same thing. And in terms of treatment, did you? No treatment, just went away. Just went away. So we looked at everything. Wore blood pressure monitors while we were filming to see if my blood pressure was spiking up or spiking down. Um, did a whole range of kind of acupuncture stuff. I thought it was I thought it was low light flicker which can affect people like that. So it's basically like a dizziness. I'm very susceptible to LED TVs flicker at a at a, a frame rate of about 100 hertz. So you can't see that, but I can see 50 hertz. Most people can't see. So I can see the the flicker of an LCD screen and so maybe it's that. So you, but you just don't know. And that that's scary when you feel something you just don't know, which is sort of the, the definition of anxiety, I think. You don't know why you feel like this, but gee, you feel like this. And it's horrible. It's such a I mean, I've had it. I had it when I had my postnatal depression and mm. also I've had it over the years and it's a horrible Almost like for me, it manifested itself in a constant sort of feeling very jittery and disconnected and hideous. You know, whether it presents as claustrophobia, agoraphobia, there's a whole range of, but it, but it's one of those, it's like a giant, it's a giant soup bowl. That, and again, there's not one size fits all. So that also makes it really hard for, for professionals to, to work out what's going on. I've certainly found that, that doing stuff that I'm, comfortable doing them, love doing, just that doesn't happen. So I can walk out in front of 2,000 people and be absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. But I'm because I'm feeling com- I'm happy and it's it's a good space. It's your happy place. And, it's, and it's a happy, well, yeah, it's a happy place. You're, room full, you're in, love, in a room full of people who love to eat cake as well. Now, MasterChef, it was such an extraordinary success. And I think it almost, it took everyone by yeah, surprise, absolutely. this juggernaut. And worldwide, it was massive. Reality TV, though, Surely, because you say in the book, nothing was planned. It was sort of left up to the food gods. That was what you and your other judges coined what would happen. Wasn't there a little bit of tinkering behind the scenes of, well, you know, that, well, oh, that, what about this person? That, or... that's, no, God, no. No, that, that's the whole point. That's why it was such a unicorn. That's why it was such a surprise that that didn't that didn't happen, and that so was it broke the mold. Brilliant. But they broke the mold on so in so many different ways because I think it was such a surprising success. You know, if you've been in the 
TV business for 30 years and suddenly this thing with three fat, ugly judges with contestants that, you know, no one else would cast because they, they, they don't fill into those normal reality show paradigms. It's all about films, it's all about food for like an hour and five days a week. You're, it's, this is craziness. When that happens and you don't know why it's a success, suddenly everything is off the table. Normally it's, it's a success because of this and we do it this way and that's why we're going to do it and that's, why, and that's when I think you see producers being, being quite, you know, quite strong in it. But Margie Bashful, who's the EP, said she never walked into a set where it was, it was so much of a kind of communal decision-making about, about what made it good. But that was also what was so good about it. And the positivity. I think the positivity fact that it was... Crucial. And you were lifting people up, and that's what we want to see more of. Well, well, I think certainly at that point, you know, so it, that was happening around the world. There was, a, there was a swing away from that kind of negativity into a more positive world, and that's... the Barack Obama gets elected. We were just, we caught that wave at the right time. But also I think the other thing about it is that we found this situation where bizarrely, you know, when things like, look, we'll look at two contestants. So um, Marion Gadsby, amazing cook. She was the absolute favorite that year. People loved her, loved her, loved her. They loved her like Snow White level of love. You know, someone wrote some of great lines saying that when, when Marion walks in, there are bluebirds <laughs> dancing and singing on her shoulder. And it's, that was what it was like. Then when she was sent home because the satay sauce she cooked wasn't as good as the other satay sauce, it was like that MasterChef had killed Bambi. But it also was the right thing to do. It was obvious to everyone who could see it that, that Aaron's sauce was better. And then when that's confirmed by your judges and then that person goes back, you go, oh, I'm not expecting that. The combination of, of that surprise and of, of it not following, we're all very media savvy now, but not following the Hollywood moment. Not a moment. formula. Not, not a, for a formula. Game of Thrones, same idea. Yes. We, we used to say it was like, like Game of Thrones. You never, know, we never knew who was going to go because we didn't know. It Who's wasn't the mother of dragons, though? Would you be the mother of dragons? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think I, I cast myself in a far, far worse um, <laughs> Tyrion, probably. Um, <laughs> now, I, in terms of that idea, though, that idea that it, it has to be real, it has to be authentic, and that we had, we would have people on set, they could leave their mobile phone and their watch on. They could see that our challenge and our challenge. So all that stuff, I think, was important on a long-term basis. In in terms of you felt it, you felt it was going. We were trying to do the right thing by the contestants. That becomes far easier when you have a situation, and we mentioned, you know, well. Justine Poe, Judy Goodwin, still household names 15 years later. Oh, they're extraordinary. And, and across the board, there are so many. I think 24 of the 240 contestants that I got to work with have had TV shows. It's still going on with what, what Andy and what Sophia and what uh, John Christoph and what Poe are going to do with the next generation. And, that, and it's the same thing. It's the same people who, you know, are good cooks, want to become great cooks, and they get mentored to doing that. But it should always be about the contestants, not about the judges. Sometimes... You know, the judges that we get in the way, but always that idea that all these people don't have to win. And they're all winners. So with judges, though, because you and George and Gary, you were like the magic triangle, weren't you? Good shape, yes. Very good shape. Did you ever have dramas? I mean, because often with TV, I think about people I've worked with over the years. Oh, but there that, are yeah. moments, there's pressures, there's things, you fall out, you fall back in love again, literally. 
Did you have times like that? Well, with yeah. Look at the, be- the beginning. We had that for sure. I mean, talk about it in the book. That you know, at the beginning it was pretty frosty because Gary is like Gary's got two thousand and five hundred years as a chef, and suddenly he's having to share a discussion about about food with me. And so there was definitely a sense of my and I'm kind of like, well, look, I've reviewed restaurants around the world. You know, all, the, all those that male alfery, chess-beaty sort of ridiculousness. And I used to liken it to, you know, they were the cobras and I was the mongoose. You know, critic and restaurateurs, they probably say it's the other way around, two mongoose and a cobra. Um, but the, it is this kind of, there's, there's a conflict between that relationship. What happened, though, pretty early on in season one, and probably, it was probably in Hong Kong, I would think, around that time, it was like suddenly we're going, well, we all agree, and we all agree on what's good and what's bad. That moment, you look at each other and go, I know what you're going to say. And that's chemistry, and then, and then isn't some, it? And that's that sense when you you get to know each other. We all we all had different strengths, you know. We all had different weaknesses, and we would tease each other. But I think probably rather than in certain, I'm not going to mention them, in certain environments of team in media, the teasing is often a way of well, it's of bullying. bullying. That's right. But in in this case, we tease Gary about oh, Gary. Is that another masterclass? You're just giving them, and we go on five minutes talking about what, how you really should bone out a chicken. And we're going, it's a masterclass. Isn't it? Yeah, Gary, Gary, it's a masterclass. You can't do that. But we'd love it. We were very lucky because we all knew each other. We we're all from Melbourne. We we're filming up in Sydney. That helped us, I think, grow close together. One, because we we're up here in Sydney with each other to, you know, to keep an eye on each other and look after. And also, we'd known each other prior. So there, so there, were, so there, there was, was that connection. So what about then when you discovered that you weren't going to be coming back yeah. as a judge. Yeah. You write about that, I think, in a very kind of generous way. Surely you must have been angry or bitter or... It's, it's a business decision. Re- but uh, really? It's, it's, yes, because we've had, we, you've gone through a negotiation process. It's a business decision. And all that happens is we, we want this, they want that, we want to give them that, we do. You have that. And then at some point... Either both parties go great, we're there, or one party goes too hard, too hard basket, we're moving on. And so you can't, that's their decision to make. Um, I think that's a very sensible way to think about it. Where I struggle myself is when they say, yes, it is just about business. But the thing is, and it's the not. business is you though. Yeah, You're yeah. your business. It would have been much harder, for example, if they'd come back and said, you know, Gary, George, you stay on, but we're going to get a remat. You know, for example, and that would be far harder. I, that would have that would be far harder to deal with. All of us going together. That was kind of we'd always said that we wanted to do that. None of us wanted to go on individually, so that was good. And also, the other thing is, um, we've been doing it for eleven years. It had been amazing, done brilliant things. Show was going you know, like gangbusters overseas, but I was still loving it. I could see that if I went on for another 10 years, I would get to that point where, it, where I didn't have that enthusiasm and that love and that excitement and that, that thing I still get now where I, where I go and, you know, I, you know, I go to someone's cafe and it's, it's there or Laura Sherrod's having a baby and I'm really excited about that. She, it was Laura Kasai. I love that. That's the real pleasure about it, that it, it was never just a job and I never wanted it to become a job where you're going... You don't want to be up. resentful, like just going through the motions. And you see that... You see that in all areas. You see footballers who don't love playing football and you think how tragic and how far they've come from that, you know, that nine-year-old kid who could think of nothing better than just bouncing the ball everywhere he went. And, but that's maybe a benefit of being old as well, that I think, you know, that you see rejection Wiser, as personal. rather than old. 
Yeah, I don't, I, yeah the, the whole thing about, oh, you understand the whole thing about old is, of course, perspective, because when you are 16, an 18-year-old is really old. So so there's kind of a, a thing, but yeah, wiser. Uh, but I also, I would not sure I'm saying wiser, because I'm not sure we, are, we do actually get wiser. We probably just get better at hiding our stupidity. <laughs> yeah, true. You talk about how it was easier because all three of you went. That was simple. It must have been hard for you, though, when you saw George going through the really tough time that he did over both the underpayment yep. scandal and then the soccer yeah. incident. I mean, I was there at the soccer, so so I saw that, um, and I saw what happened there, and I, and I saw him immediately afterwards. And that what happened in terms of what happened with the court was pretty clear. And but obviously, everyone's seen a video; they've made an opinion of it. So regardless of what the court says, you're carrying the stigma that comes with that. So that's one of that's something we have to put down to media and ask them the question. I think in terms of the underpayment stuff, I've been I was very clear at the time. I'm very clear in the book about two things. One, it's George's story to tell. But number two, you have to pay people what they're owed, and that is especially important in those areas where you're dealing with vulnerable people, young people, students. You know, people who don't have a voice. You've got to do the right thing and to be the terrible thing. Did you tell George that? Um, no, but I did say it very loudly on, on the media when he was listening. So, yeah, and, I, and, and, I, and uh, yeah, George knows my opinion on that, right? So you haven't um, had like a face-to-face oh, but, conversation. But, 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 George would, but George would ask George, and this is the thing, this is what I say, ask George. I think you find that George would agree with that as well. But who else was that year? Who else was doing that? Who else did the media go after? How many millions, and how and how is that still continuing? How can it still continue? And how can it still continue that vulnerable people in, in society who aren't paid very much aren't getting what they're supposed to get? And that's just, it's not acceptable. So that's as well tapping to your sense of right and wrong, but also but I think about, everybody, of course. Everybody's sense of right and wrong. I don't, of course. I think that's one of those things. If we sit in a room with 20 people and you go, is this right or wrong? Everyone goes, you can't do that. It's like, we, it's not like a, it's a black or white and, you know, we all know what white is. Yes. Tell me just before we wrap up, because I could talk to you forever. I love your passion. Is there still a bit of punk in you? Because you were a punk for a time. Hello, look, look at what I'm wearing. <laughs> no, but that's a look very dapper. Like, that's a it's very... Just a polished, it's just polishing up the old, the old image. Um, <laughs> you know what? Yes, of course there is. Can you describe for our listeners what it is that you actually have on today? I'm obsessed by Australian fashion. So everything I wear starts from about 1870s Australia. There was a thing called flash dressing, okay? And there was a way, and it was, mix, it was mixing fabrics and it was obviously a, a scarf or an ascot or a cravat, and it was Cuban heels or Spanish heels, which are kind of undercut heels. Um, so I'm wearing a pair of black suede R.M. Williams with, um, with Spanish heels. You can do this wonderful thing with R.M. Williams where you spend about an extra 100 bucks and you can customize the boot to the leather, the toe shape. So it's a clean seam rather than a welt. It's got a, a slightly pointed toe, but not the full point. This um, it's detail, got black, I'm loving. Black elastic inlay. <laughs> so I'm wearing those. Suit made by the same blokes who make my suits for 13, 12 years. A wonderful guy called Pino Prinzi up in Brunswick, and he's marvellous. And, and he, he and I and Charmaine Di Pasquale, who was, my, who was the stylist of MasterChef, we would sit there at the beginning and go, what are you going to do? What's, what cuts? And you'd go, what how about this? fun! As good as eating cake. It actually looks like the suit the Beetlejuice would wear. So black, so black and white striped suit, like single-breasted on top, double-breasted at the bottom, dark blue 
shirt made by Ganton, who I think are still the last Australian shirt makers in this country. And then the scarf was a gift from someone whose cafe I reviewed 20 years ago who I who, who came in and I totally forgot I reviewed him. He came in, he said, you don't remember this, but you reviewed us 20 years ago and now we're opening our third place and we're doing doing homewares and we're doing flowers and and it, and it, we were nervously starting out and thank you for the little part you played so that's that, that's a bit of sentimentality around the top oh matt thank you for sharing your story your exuberance your fashion your love of cake and thank you for wearing the most Gorgeous green velvet suit. I had and to do it for it. you. I love it. Because I know you love velvet. I love it. And, I love, and, I, and the, the fact the glasses yeah, work back so good. And such a good colour for you. Oh, thank such you. Such a good colour with that hair. Oh, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. I could just keep talking food, <laughs> yeah. fashion. Well, we can't. It's a podcast. I we know. We have stop. to say goodbye, all right? We've got to say goodbye. We'll just say, we'll do that. Okay. okay. Let's go. <laughs> thank you. It was such a treat to have Matt in the studio with me. I don't think there is a bloke that I love talking fashion with as much as I do, Matt. And he loves sugar, he loves cake. He is just such an amazing man with such a wonderful story. And you know what I love most about him? His generous heart. He is so interested in other people, in lifting other people up and finding out what makes them tick. But of course, that means the challenge is finding out what is it that makes Matt tick. And I think you've got a bit more of a sense of that after listening to our chat. And if you want to find out more about Matt's story, his memoir, Big Mouth, is available now. It is a rock and roll story of life, death, and growing up with the occasional scandal. Now, for more big conversations like this, follow and subscribe to the Jessro Big Talk Show podcast. It means the world to me, and it also means you will never, ever miss an episode. I cannot tell you how lovely it is when I'm out and about and I meet people and they say, I love listening to your podcast. That really makes my heart full. And also my wonderful leopard lady producer, Nick McClure, it makes her heart full as well. So please keep sharing those stories with us and contacting us as well via Insta. And now if you know someone who loves Matt, loves his cooking, loves his cravats and all the rest of it, but mightn't know a lot about his story, why not send this episode on to them? It's as simple as tapping the three dots and passing it on. And I reckon if you love this episode with Matt, you're going to enjoy my chat with Po Ling Yao. I just thought that if I chose to react to it in a yeah in a way that was negative, I would have been lying to myself because I think in my head I had already really wanted the relationship to end. Both of us did. I just processed it in a really sensible way. I thought I would be pretending to hang on to something that I actually didn't want is how I understood it. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show is hosted by me, Jess Rowe, executive producer, Nick McClure. She's a wonderful leopard lady. Audio imager, Nat Marshall. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. Listener.